I've discovered in my life that there are times in my life that it's not what I felt about God that sustained me. It's what I knew about him to be true. Anybody in the room ever had your feelings lie to you? Feelings are incredible indicators. God made you a feeling person. That's why he gave you emotions. So that you can have an indication something needs to have some attention given to it. But feelings are incredibly harsh dictators. So while your emotions may indicate something is going on in your life, it can never control the direction of your life. And I found a lot of people that their whole opinion of God shifts every time they have a different feeling. I don't feel like God was with me. I don't feel like God cared. I don't feel like God's working. And I want to tackle today in our last of these five sermons that we've preached called Forget Not. I want to tackle today a very powerful psalm that I think will speak to us about what do you do when your classroom is a cave? What do you do when you feel like what you've been sentenced to is actually the place for a conversation to begin? And I want you to take your attention, if I can today, to Psalms 27. Would you stand with me and let's read together Psalms 27. We'll read verse number 1 through 6. Psalms chapter 27, verses 1 through 6. It says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and my foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. One thing, somebody shout one thing. One thing I have desired of the Lord, and that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he will hide me, and he will set me high upon a rock. Now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I'll sing praises to the Lord. Verse 13 says this, and I would have lost heart unless I'd believed I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Father, thank you today for your word. Thank you for an anointing to preach and teach. I pray today that hearts would be open, minds would be receptive, that you would speak to us clearly, accurately. I ask you, Lord, to take every word that you have fashioned for this day and pinpoint it to the needs and hearts of every person in the room so that it can minister to them grace and strengthen their faith. To that end, I make myself available that Jesus be glorified in Jesus' name. And everybody shout amen. Amen. Turn and look at your neighbor and just say to them, don't worry about your cave. It's going to be okay. It's also great to see some friends of ours today that are part of the leaders of one of our churches. Mike, God bless the Floreses. We're glad you guys are here. That's Shad's mom and dad from California. They escaped the great state of California. Praise the Lord. We're glad you're here. Amen. I mean, you know, there are many terms in the Bible that the writers use to describe the nature of who God is. 
and give us an ability to understand what he's like. Some of those words are, are adjectives that are very definitive and help us to know what he's like. But there are other words that they use that describe the attributes of God. One of them in the book of Hebrews is that he's called immutable. Immutable, that's a big Bible word. It literally means unchangeable. But it speaks to God's steadiness, his consistency, his unchanging nature. In other words, you could say it this way. He is what he was, and he was what he will be. I'm going to try that one more time. He is what he was, and what he was, he will be. Because God was what he was, he is what he is, and he will be what he will be, and none of those are any different. In other words, he was a door opener, he is a door opener, and he will be a door opener. He was your provider, he is your provider, and he will be your provider. Let me try one more. He was your strong tower, he is your strong tower, and he will be your strong tower. He was present, he is present, and he will be present. Is anybody in the room glad that whatever he was, he still is? And what he is, he will always be. And because he was, and because he is, and because he shall be, then how many of you know it makes no difference what we face? Let me talk, let me talk to you about how we communicate what we're facing. We say things like this. It's pretty bad out there right now. It's pretty tough. It's terrible, Bishop. Or we look at a situation and we say, it's impossible. But I want to say something to you. If God is who he is, it doesn't matter whatever it is. Because he was there in the beginning. He's there presently. And he will be there when it's all finished. He's not altered by outside forces or outside influences. Nothing changes him. He changes everything he gets involved in. So one of the characteristics of God is not only that he is, is immutable, that he's unchanging, but another characteristic of God, and I want to lean into it this morning, is this, is that God is always progressing. Or you could say it this way, he's a God of movement. There's not a time in the Bible God was ever described as being stagnant. I ain't got no help anywhere in the room. Somebody online just hit a bunch of heart buttons right there. I'll get encouraged when I read this later. I mean, you know, nowhere in the Bible is God ever described as being stagnant or stuck. In fact, the Bible constantly speaks of him, of movement. From the very first book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, darkness was upon the face of the deep. Nobody knew what to do. Everything was chaotic, and the Spirit of God was moving. In other words, God was going somewhere. How many of you understand that in 2020, we may feel stuck, we may feel stagnant, we may even feel like we're in reverse, but how many of you know God's going somewhere? In, the Bible says here's what he does. He takes us from faith to faith. He takes us from strength to strength, from glory to glory. That means he takes us from Egypt to the wilderness to the promised land. But how many of you recognize that we oftentimes don't always act like him? Sometimes we get stuck. And let me add something to that. How many of you know that while God is always moving or he's always being progressive, how many of you know our adversary is just the opposite? Our adversary is always seeking to stop forward advancement. He's always seeking to stop progression in your life. He's always seeking to put obstacles in your path to keep you from development. Because what he doesn't want you to do is move on. There's nothing worse than being in 2020 and still living in 2018. And because the enemy loves to block, resist, and hinder the movement of people into the destiny that God has for them. And so what he does is he constantly intends to get us stuck. He wants to get you stuck in relationships that don't work. 
He wants to get you stuck in your professional life so you feel like you're not making any advance. He wants to get you to be stuck in a problem that you continually uh, contend with over and over and over. He wants to get you stuck in habits. He wants to get you stuck in cycles where you feel like all you do is keep repeating the same redundant defeat over and over and over. And all of those things come for one purpose. Listen, they all come to demoralize your faith and to rob you of your future. But as I was preparing for this message, I heard the Holy Ghost say, and he said, speak it as a prophetic promise over people today. So I'm just going to do what the Lord said to me. I'm going to declare this as a prophetic promise over your life. It is time for a breakthrough. In a season when advancement does not make sense, I heard the Lord say, I'm going to show myself to be strong on the behalf of people who have been at a place long enough. I'm about to move the obstacles. I'm about to break through the walls. And I'm going to move through all the resistance so they can begin to declare over their life, the day of my breakthrough is here. It's not going to be. It is presently here right now. Is anybody ready for a breakthrough? Would you just shout at me wherever you're at? Because your breakthrough, just like God is not moved by external environments, I mean, even though your breakthrough is not predicated on what's happening in the earth. Wow, well, I thought I had to have all the things lining up. I, all the stars had to line up for me to have a breakthrough. How many of you know the only thing that needs to happen for you to have a breakthrough is God to do something in your life that everybody thought was impossible? In the Psalms that we read today, Psalms 27, it was written by David, and it was written by him at a time in his life when some of the scholars disagree exactly the timing, but the one thing they all agree on is that it was written during the time, watch this, during the time of his anointings. Somebody say anointings. David was anointed three times in his lifetime, and it's, this is important to where we want to go, because what happens is every anointing brought him to an enlargement. It brought him to an increase. How many of you know God puts promises over your life, and then he begins to incrementally move you towards the things he promised you? I'm going to try that one more time. God's put promises in your life, then he incrementally begins to move you towards them. He told the children of Israel when he brought them out of Egypt, he said, I will give you the promised land little by little. In other words, there's going to be incremental increase that comes to your life as you walk in obedience to what I have for you. Because if I dumped it all on you at one time, you wouldn't be able to handle it. Hmm? So we know that this Psalm, Psalm 27, was written during David's anointings and primarily probably between the first and second anointing. Let me tell you when his anointings occurred because this is important for everybody in the building. And he was probably in the cave of Adullam when he wrote Psalms 27. I've stood in the caves of Adullam. They are not little one-room apartments. They, are, they can hold hundreds of people on the inside of these caves. He was in a big place and God was trying to enlarge his territory. The first anointing of David took place among his brethren in his father's house. Listen, you'll never be more anointed away from home than you are at home. I worry about people that believe they can go away and be more anointed than they are where they're from. David had to first be anointed among his brethren. How many of you know if the people that know you best don't recognize anything on your life, it's probably not worth exporting? I'm not feeling no love. Let me preach over here. It comes a time in your life that everybody's a hero when they're away from home. You know, a guy told me years ago, he, how many of you know that an expert is just a little pert that's away? <laughs> Come on, somebody. You have to realize that David was first anointed among his brethren, his brothers, the people that made fun of him, mocked him, criticized him, and they never stopped doing that. I want you to hear something. They never, ever really stopped doing that. Even when he killed Goliath, they were asking him, what are you doing down here? David's second anointing came. He came it came in a place that was very difficult to reach. It was up among the cliffs. It was at Hebron 
which is in the mountains. And the second one, he was anointed over the people of Judah. Everybody shout Judah. Judah. Judah was the two tribes that were basically became the southern tribes that became a part. Judah means praise. So he had to climb to a high place. Hebron means the place of connection or the place of partnership. He had to learn how to be anointed among people that would partner with him for the vision God put in his life. Because all of your dreams will never come to pass by yourself. I'm helping somebody today. Please let me walk through this. Hmm? Will you give me time to walk through this? Huh? He had to get to a place where he had divine connections, divine appointments, and he had to learn that when he got anointed among the people he was connected to, it would produce praise in the earth. And his third anointing came when the, the Bible says, and the men came looking for him and said, will you be king over all of Israel? How many of you know when he really became occupying the throne was when people came looking for him, not when he went looking for the throne? There's a big difference between you striving for something and God giving you something. And as long as we strive for it, God never lets us sit in it. But when we come to rest at his pace, then how many of you know he'll let you sit in the place he's ordained for you and the people that you've been assigned to will come look for you? There's something amazing when people start calling your name. Hmm? How many of you know that when God says, I'm going to give you a promotion, then it may be that the company will start calling you? Woo. Because God begins to move us incrementally into the places he's ordained for you. Every Now watch this. Please don't miss this. Every new anointing brought into David's life things he desired and things he didn't desire. Every time, somebody better hear me today, every time you get what you prayed for, you get things you didn't pray for. Hmm? Because how many of you know, when he got anointed over, when he was, his first anointing, he was over nobody. He had to learn to lead his own life. The first place you're anointed is to learn how to lead you. I am really preaching good this morning. Huh? In other words, you got to learn how to tell yourself, get up out of bed. I, I, and I'm not going to leave that long. I keep moving. That means you have to tell yourself, I got to learn how to talk to myself. I got to learn how to encourage myself. I got to, I got to quit watching 14 different people on television, hoping they'll give me a word. And I got to learn how to get in my bedroom by myself, lay hands on my own head until I fall out on my bed and get up from there with a word from God. I got to be anointed to learn how to lead me. Once I can lead me, then I can lead a band of people called Judah. And then when I can lead them, the nation will come looking for me, and they'll find me. So he, listen, when his first anointing came, he got more in, he got more authority, he got more well-known. It was after his first anointing that he killed Goliath. He became a national hero. So he got recognition, he got fame, he got people that were ooing and awing about him. He, but he, the time he was anointed over Judah, guess what he got? He got more responsibility. Because you know who was in that cave with him? 400 men who were in debt, discouraged, and disillusioned. And they all came and said, David, we're going to be your mighty band, we're, your band of warriors. We're going to be your army. And David's going, I'm running for my life. Y'all are worse off than I am. I'm I mean, you talk about the bad news bears. He is leading the bad news bears. So he got additional responsibility. But watch this. When he got anointed, please don't miss this. When he got anointed, he got more opposition. Nothing was opposing him when he was out there keeping his daddy's sheep. But once he killed Goliath, now everybody starts being opposed, uh, opposition to him. The Philistines become aware of him. Even his boss misunderstands him. And Saul begins to be jealous over him. And he begins to have opposition. He begins to have battles. Listen to me. Don't miss this. Put it in your notes. God can never enlarge your life without teaching you how to manage both areas. The things you desired that came and the things you don't desire that came. Because if you don't learn how to manage both areas, you never can enlarge your territory and become everything God wanted you to be. 
So while he's in this cave, in Adullam, David begins to write, watch this, about his perception of who God is that he's serving. Because his feelings are all over the place. His emotions are everywhere. If you read some of the Psalms David writes, you'll find out he's a pretty, he's, he's a pretty emotional guy. I mean, he writes things like, Lord, I pray you'd break their jaws and crush their teeth. I mean, that, come on, that's a little bit better than a Mike Tyson, Roy Jones fight. <laughs> Where two old men are just proud enough they had enough breath to get to the end. Come on, somebody. It may be simple, but I guarantee you there are people in this room, there are people that are watching me today that never realize this. What you perceive about God determines what you receive from God. What you perceive about God determines what you receive from God. You say, is that in the Bible? Yeah, it is. Let me give you an illustration. In the New Testament, Mark chapter 6, the Bible says Jesus goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. And when he goes back to his hometown, the Bible says, this is what the Bible says, he could do no mighty miracles there except he laid hands on a few sick people and they were made well. Hmm? He could do no mighty miracles there. Why? Because of how they perceived him. The Bible says that the majority of the crowd, watch this, the majority of the crowd said, oh, he's Joseph's boy. That's the carpenter's son. That's Mary's boy. I went to school with his brother. But there were a few people who said, that's the Messiah. That's the Christ. That's the anointed one. So here's what happened. A few people got what was available for the many people. But the many didn't receive it because they didn't perceive him like the few did. That's why there's people that sit in church and there's some folks that leave with a blessing and other folks leave wondering what happened. Because how many of you know God doesn't come and hit you upside the head and tell you you're going to be blessed, you're going to be enlarged, you're going to be increased. He waits for you to have a perception of who he is. And when you discern who he is, then you can receive what he has available for you. I am talking to somebody today in the name of the Lord. You have got to get your perception of who he is proper. Because if you have a messed up God complex and a messed up God concept, then you'll begin to judge God to be something he's really not. He's really being faithful to you, but you'll declare he's not being faithful. He's really looking out for your good, but you'll declare he's leaving you and abandoning you. You have got to understand that some people saw him as a carpenter's boy and got what a carpenter can do. Some people saw him as the Messiah and got what a Messiah can do. What do you see him as today? If you see him as just a religious person inside of the pages of a book, then you'll get a religious Bible teacher. But if you see him as a God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond anything you could ever ask or think, you'll tap into that God and all things will be possible. Hallelujah. So David said, I'm going to tell you about the God that I know about, even though I don't feel like he's this right now. Because in moments of great battles, our feelings can be the source of our greatest deception. I've listened to people in 2020 who I thought were strong believers, who I thought really walked with God, who have demonstrated that they really believe he abandoned them somewhere. Because the circumstances of our day has overtaken them emotionally and paralyzed and demoralized their faith. Come on, somebody. We have to recognize that God is who he says he is. If he's not, we ought to shut up shop, sell this property, and everybody go to the beach. Because playing religious games is an occupation I don't desire. So here's what David said. David said, this is who I know he is. He is my light. He is my salvation. And he is my shelter. 
Notice this. He didn't say he has light. He says he is my light. He didn't say he offers salvation. He says he is my salvation. He didn't say he provides shelter. He says he is my shelter. Wow. Wow. It's a whole lot different when somebody just provides something than when they are something. He said he is my light. Everybody shout light. How many of you know what, that, what he says is this? God is the source of my illumination. He's the revealer of truth. He's the one who shows me the pathway to walk in. His word becomes a what? A lamp unto my pathway and a light unto, a light unto my pathway and a lamp unto my feet. Why? Because God knows more than I do. He's an illuminator. Can I say something? Everybody going to keep loving me? Some of us have to battle darkness because we believe that certain sources are greater people of information than the God we serve. Well, he's a scientist. Big deal. God made the science he's studying. Well, you have to understand, Bishop, he's an, he's an, he's a, he's an accountant. Really? God, God takes accounting and turns it into stuff that doesn't make sense. For us, two plus two equals four. For God, two little fishes, uh, five little fishes and two little pieces of bread can feed 5,000 people. He takes accounting and just turns it upside down. Well, you have to understand, he's a doctor. Well, guess what? The one who created your body, who nobody can explain how all of the things work on the inside of you. What is it that keeps your blood flowing through your veins that are a hundred and some miles long? What is it that keeps air flowing in and out of your lungs? The one who created you, who formed you while you was in your mother's womb. Do you think he takes a back seat? I'm not criticizing scientists or doctors or accountants. You're missing what I'm saying. Here's what I am saying. There is a higher authority than the ones we lean into, and that is God is my light. Hallelujah. You don't, you don't believe that? Let me, let me give you an illustration. I, I realize I'm, I'm really walking out on the limb today. But we, we can never experience the second part when he says, he is my salvation. We can never, because the word salvation means deliverance. We can never experience deliverance in any area of our lives, lives until the light shines into it. You can't be delivered from sin until you recognize sin exists in you. You can't be delivered from bitterness till the light shines in and shows you you're bitter. You can't be delivered from pride until the light shines into it and lets you know you're full of pride. And sometimes we just think, well, people ought to get that. It's even written in our, in our Declaration of Independence. Let me read the first lines. We hold these truths, watch this word, to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Did I quote that right? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men were created equal and were endowed with unalienable rights. I'm going to repeat it again because you had not got it yet. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That's in the Declaration of Independence of the formation of our nation. We hold these truths. To be self-evident. In other words, anybody with common sense would know what we're about to say. That's what those men were writing. Anybody that's rational would understand what follows this ought to be understood and make sense. The only problem is the very men that were writing it own slaves. So there's some things that were not self-evident. That all men were created equal. Because in their eyes, women couldn't vote or own property. 
So it wasn't self-evident. What happened over the course of time? You say, are oh, you criticizing our fathers? No, that's not what I'm doing. I'm saying over the course of time, incrementally, God shines light into our lives. He shines light into a nation and begins to say, no slavery cannot exist. No women are not second-class citizens. No children cannot be working at 10 years of age in factories. And the light shines. And as the light shines, things begin to be changed and get deliverance. That's why some people want to throw up their hands and quit on the world I'm saying let the light shine on the world because if the light shines in some things that have not been self-evident will become spirit revealed and when they're spirit revealed salvation can come to the people of God hallelujah see I found out that common sense is really not that common because it takes revelation to reveal what we cannot see. You and I struggle to see even blind spots in our life without revelation. He has to be our light. Because there are things that are not self-evident. How many, how many of you have looked at people and said, if they were just rational, if they just pay attention, they know that's stupid. Okay, let me just break it on down because I can tell I'm in good territory. How many of you know people with a rational mind knows you'll not be spending $700 a week if you're making 500 on a credit card? We hold these truths to be self-evident. That's stupid. But how many of you know we are the most indebted nation in the world? We even go to college students and offer them credit cards before they ever get involved in college. Why? Because we want to get them addicted to debt before they can ever be free from what it means to live debt-free or begin to experience that life. If we can ever get them addicted, it's like cocaine. I mean, you know, the first time you try drugs, a drug dealer gives them to you because he wants to get you dependent on them so that he then can control you by it. That's what the world does with all of its things that should be self-evident. But I'm here to announce to you there is a light shining. Jesus showed up in John chapter 1. He said, I am the light of the world. And the light shines into the darkness and the darkness cannot comprehend it. It can't shut it off. Everywhere the light shines, darkness cannot win. When I look at people that call themselves believers and they're doing all kinds of crazy things, I just know the lights ain't on. I ain't got no help. Because there's been times in my life the light wasn't on. I remember one time praying and asking God, God, I'm, God was giving me promises. He was telling me things was going to happen. And I was like, why is this not happening? And I was laying on the floor praying. And God said to me, you can't get to that place because this is in your life. And he said, if I don't deal with your selfish ambition, I can never promote you to where you want to go. I didn't know I had selfish ambition until the light shined on it. And I realized that everything I was doing, I was doing to promote me, not for his glory. He said, the Lord's my light. He's my salvation. And he's my strength. You know what that means? God is my safe place. He's my safe space. Here's the problem. We tend to want to live our lives outside of him and add him on to what we do rather than move into who he is. Colossians chapter 1 says this, when Christ appears, whose life he is. He is our life. He's not just a part of my life. He is my life. Paul wrote to the Galatians and he says, it is no longer I that live, but it's Christ that lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who died and gave himself for me. What would your life be like if you lived by his faith and not yours? Wow. That's what Paul said was possible. Because he becomes my life. 
So when David made that declaration, he said, you're my light, you're my salvation, you're my strength. He then begins to tell us what are the applications of that reality. When I settle that in my life, here's the, here's the application. You can write them down quickly. Four things, I'm gonna, and I'll be out of your way. Four things, write them down. Number one, first thing he says is, when I understand that God is those things, that's who he is, whether I feel like it or not, then he said, here's what I know. Number one, God is present in my battles. He's present. Somebody say, he's present. Jehovah Shema, that's the Old Testament name for the Lord who is there. That's what it means. The Lord who is there, the God who is there. You say, what does that mean? That means when you get to lunch, he's already there. When you go home today, he's there. And when you get to Monday, he's already there. He's present tense. He's not late and he's not early. He's present. Woo. And then he speaks about battles. Watch this. I got to go quickly. He speaks about battles in two different directions. In verse number two, he says, when my enemies came upon me that I wasn't expecting, they came to cannibalize me. My enemies came to take me out. Then all of a sudden they stumbled and fell. Why? Because God fought for me. Somebody say, God fought for me. That's what happens when the battle chooses you. When you didn't choose the battle, but the battle chose you. Anybody ever just get up one week and all of a sudden a battle came into your life you wasn't expecting out of anywhere and you thought, where did this come from? What did I do wrong? How come this came? And all of a sudden it showed up at your front door. Then here's what David said. He said, when enemies showed up I wasn't expecting and it looked like it was going to literally eat my life up, I found out that God was fighting and working for me. My enemies stumbled and fell. But then he says in verse number three, there are times in my life, watch this, there are times in my life when the battle doesn't choose me, there are times in my life when I choose the battle. Because when I encounter warfare, when armies rise against me, in other words, he's using language to say, I chose to make an advance, and when I made the advance, I encountered warfare. Somebody said, well, the devil ain't been bothering me, probably because you ain't been moving. But when David said, I chose to make an advance, all of a sudden I encountered warfare. Armies began to be stationed against me. But he said, in spite of that, I'll be confident. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. If you're going to make advances in your life, there's going to come some time you're going to have to get courage enough to go into the battle and into the arena in order for the advance to take place. If you and I sit still and say, I don't want any warfare, I don't want any battles, I don't want any struggles, then just go on and relegate your life to a place of mediocrity because you're never going to move into what God has for you. We were talking yesterday with our kids. There is nothing that we have ever done in our life, Kathy and I, there's nothing that we didn't move forward into that we didn't encounter some kind of resistance that's why God gave you your faith it's called the fight of faith and guess what the Bible calls it the good fight of faith why because this is the victory that overcomes the world even your faith so when you start moving towards what God has promised you and you encounter a, an army that looks to be posed against you or the forces of darkness begin to work against you here's what David said in spite of all that I'm going to be confident. I'm going to stand up and look at my... Do you realize what David did with Goliath? He didn't wait on Goliath to show up to him. He knew he was an enemy standing between him and the peace of Israel. So David did this. The Bible says, and David ran towards the giant. I'm looking for people in Oklahoma City who will not sit and wait on giants to show up. I'm looking for people who will say, I ain't got but five stones and a slingshot, but I'm running at my enemy because I'm ready to take territory. I'm ready to go places I've never gone. I'm ready for God to enlarge me in ways like I've never been enlarged. And I'm moving out towards the enemy in my life. Because I realize when I get to the battle, God will be present. I'm never alone. Second thing is this, sitting in a cave now, remember this, his classroom was a cave. He's sitting in a cave when he wrote this. He says this, 
God's presence is the greatest pursuit of my life. He's in a cave running for his life. But he said the greatest pursuit of my life, please, please hear me, the greatest pursuit of his life is not survival. The greatest pursuit of his life is his presence. Verse 4, one thing. Somebody shout one thing. One thing have I desired of you, and that will I seek after all the days of my life. I'm not going to spend all of my energy seeking material things, relational things, entertaining things. I'm going to spend my life chasing one thing. And if I chase the one thing, all the other things will be added to me. Hallelujah. Huh? Do you realize how transformed our life would be if we could ever grasp the one thing? What would your life be like if you could just ever figure out the one thing that really matters? You say, I got that, Bishop. Well, no, guess what? The rich young ruler didn't. He was a highly successful businessman, highly prestigious, highly influential. Hold on to your seat, and extremely religiously devout. He never missed a service, he never missed a tithe. But yet, when he showed up to Jesus, Jesus looked at him and said, You've been very successful in your life. I can tell you're very religious. You've done all the right things, crossed your T's, dotted your I's. But there's one thing you're missing. You missed the one thing. Wow. Wouldn't you hate to spend your whole life and all your energy chasing something and God look at you and say, well, you've done really good. You just missed the one thing. That really mattered. Martha didn't get it. She had entertained Jesus in her house multiple times. Because see, you think, well, if I just come into church on Sunday, I'll understand the one thing. I want to announce to you, probably not. Probably not. Martha entertained Jesus at her house multiple times. And yet when she got in the battle of her life, Jesus came to her house and he said to her, Martha, Martha, you are so busy about all kinds of stuff. You just work yourself. You just try to serve everything. You just are so busy. He actually says you're encumbered with all kinds of stuff. But there's only one thing that's really needed. And Mary has chosen the good part. Jesus, here's what she said. Jesus, make Mary get up and help me. I mean, after all, life can't be about me just sitting at the feet of Jesus. I'm just reading the Bible. Jesus said, maybe you spent so much energy on your professional life and you keep spinning your wheels because you don't know how to sit at his feet. Because if you'd sit at his feet, your professional life would go where you want it to go. Because then you would be given the one thing, the place it needs. Could it be that this pandemic was meant to reset our lives? There'd be nothing worse than some people to just speed up and miss the one thing. Here's what David said. He said, when I find, when I go after the one thing, and listen, he didn't get there all at once. Neither will you or I. But he said, here's what the one thing does for me. It gives me an opportunity to dwell 
in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Wow. I know a lot of people that like to visit the house of the Lord. He said, I can dwell there. What would it be like to dwell in the presence of God all the days of my life? What would it be like while I'm at work typing an email? I just sense him there with me. What would it be like while you're cooking dinner? His presence fills the kitchen. Because you learn that the house of the Lord is not a physical piece of property. The house of the Lord is the tabernacle where he is. He is the tabernacle. Hmm? I can dwell in him. I don't have time to unpack all this, but, but in, in, in the Garden of Eden where, where Adam and Eve were, when they got put out of the garden, God put two angels, two cherubim with drawn swords to keep them from going back into this place of abiding presence. And those two angels with drawn swords kept them from living in constant dwelling of the house of the Lord. So that when Moses constructed the, the tabernacle of Moses, there was an outer court, an inner court, and then the most holy place. We always talk about the veil was rent at Calvary. Let me tell you what was on that veil. Do you know what was on that veil? On that veil was embroidered two cherubim with drawn swords because it was a sign or a symbol that they were protecting the place of abiding presence. And at Calvary, he removed the cherubim. He tore it so that you and I can now live. We don't have to come in and out of the holy place. I can live in the holy place of God every day of my life. I can be in the holy of holies. I don't have to be in a worship service. I can be putting makeup on. I don't put makeup on, but I can be putting makeup on and, and be in the presence of God. I can be driving to work and step into the holy of holies. I can be in my house sitting in my chair and step into the holy of holies because the veil has been torn now because I've made him the pursuit of my life I can dwell in the I feel the Holy Ghost I can dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and when I dwell in the house of the Lord I do it for two reasons to behold to behold the beauty of the Lord you find out that he is so fabulous in fact, the, the, the writer of the Song of Solomon says, have you seen my beloved? He's the fairest of 10,000. If you ever see him, you'll never see anything like him another day in your life. I go, to, I go around the world and preach and I look at people and they got this image of God that he's mad and frowning and he's got this ugly attitude and he's mad at people and he's mad at people's lifestyles. And I want to say, I don't know who you've been beholding, but you've not been beholding the God that I serve. If you look at him, he is full of compassion and mercy and his words bring life to those who receive them John said when I saw him I didn't see him as a defeated Jesus on a cross I didn't see him bleeding and dying and marred and scarred what I saw was a man who had hair that was white like wool and out of his eyes was like a flame of fire his, out of his mouth went a two-edged sword his eyes were like a flame of fire and his vestments were filled with the blood of the lamb saying I've redeemed you I've bought you I have paid for you and his voice said this I am he that has the keys to hell and to death I have redeemed everything you've lost hallelujah, hallelujah. he said I came to behold and I came to inquire in other words one of the reasons I want to be in the presence of God, come on guys, is to ask him, what about today? Help me. I'm in the fight of my life. What is your wisdom? I ask God questions. Things like, what do you want me to do here? How do you want me to respond? Because I found out David learned this, and he learned this because of this passage. There's a time he's fighting Philistines, and he said to the Lord, he said, what do I do? And the Lord said, go up at once. Go up 
and defeat them. And the next time they, the, he defeated them and they came back. But rather than doing what he did last time, he inquired again. What do you want me to do this time? And the Lord said, be still. See, we become so conditioned to believe that God will do everything the same way. Well, I fasted for three days and I got my breakthrough. So now every time we have a battle, what do we do? We fast for three days rather than inquiring. I was recently in a situation, Kathy and I would need a breakthrough about something, and I'd been seeking the Lord, and I normally do certain things in my prayer times when I'm in certain places and where I feel like there's a wall, we're stuck. And this time the Lord said to me, sow a seed. I said, well, that's different. Sow this seed. I mean, you know, sometimes if you're facing a Jericho, he may tell you, shout. But you got to inquire. Am I doing okay today? Third thing he said was this. He said, when I found out who God was, I realized God's protection is secure. His protection secure. Verse number five. Here's what he said. He said, he will hide me in his pavilion. The word pavilion there is the word cave. It's the same word for cave. In other words, how many of you know some of the things you thought you were sentenced to might really be the place of your classroom? You're really not sentenced at all. Some people could say, I'm in this cave. God, God has sentenced me. It's my punishment. It wasn't his punishment. He'd been anointed. And God was trying to incrementally move him towards being king. But he said, in order to get you there, I need to take you to the classroom of a cave. And don't worry about your enemies, because listen, when God hides you, nobody can find you. You got to learn how to behave in a cave. It's a secret place. Maybe you really weren't being rejected. Maybe you were being protected. When you wanted to be a part of the in group. You say, what do you mean, Bishop? Let me tell you what, Kathy and I experienced this. I won't, I won't in any way touch who it is. But you know, I live in a world full of preachers, continually. Full of leaders at all kinds of levels. I've sat in offices with presidents, prime ministers. I've taught cabinet members multiple times. Been hired by nations to come and do leadership development for, for prime ministers. I had a guy walk to me one time who was very well known. And he said to Kathy and I, he said, you know what, I'd, we love you guys and we enjoy your fellowship. And he said, I just bought a place in such and such state. It's a resort area. He said, we'd love for you to come. I noticed all everybody else that he was friends with was getting invitations to come be there. And he said, but uh, he said, uh, I really am not comfortable inviting you. And I said, that's no, I'm cool, no problem. He said, no, 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 we love you. There's nobody in our life that we love hardly more than you, do, you all. I said, really? He said, but I can't invite you because what I do when I'm there on my downtime, I can't do in front of you. Because I'd feel bad. And at that moment, I didn't feel rejected by this group of high-rolling leaders. I felt protected. I told my wife, it makes me feel good that people can't do things in front of me that might destroy their spirit. And the sad part is, over the next couple of years, things for all the people that were hanging out there, many of them, it all went south. And I thought I could have cried over not being invited to the in group, but really God wasn't rejecting me. He was protecting me. Maybe you don't need her back. Maybe you don't need him back. Maybe it wasn't a breakup. Maybe it was a protection point. 
Maybe that relationship was not best for where God wants to take you. David says, so here's what I know, that when I'm running for my life, God will hide me. He'll protect me. And he closed with this. He said, when I know he's present, and when I know his presence is my main pursuit, and when I know he's got my back, he's protecting me, then I know he's worthy of my praise. He becomes the lifter. I came here today to tell somebody it's time to hold your head up. Somebody's listening to me online. It's, it's time for you to hold your head up. Stop being overwhelmed. Hold your head up. He's going to become the lifter of your head. He said, therefore, because of what I know about God, here's what I'm going to do. I will offer, not, what's the language? What's the language? He said, I will offer sacrifices of joy. You ever didn't have anything to really rejoice about, but you rejoiced anyway? That's what he's talking about. He's saying, I really don't have anything in the immediate to rejoice about, but I'm going to rejoice anyway. Say, I just believe the gate church. It's, you know, somebody said to, to me, I'm asked this question quite a bit, and we actually, somebody asked me walking in this morning, what's it like to be a pastor in November of 2020? I said, it's hell on earth. You want me to tell you the truth? You can't pastor people you can't see. You don't know who's where. You don't know what's where. You don't know whether people are in good shape, but wrong, bad shape, whether their faith is strong, whether it's weak. You don't know because you can't, you can't get up close to people in the way like you'd want to. You want your teams to be able to do. I said, it's hellacious. But you know what I've had to make myself do? I've had to learn that when there's nothing to rejoice, I'll offer sacrifices of rejoicing. I'll rejoice anyway. I'll, I'll get myself up and say, you know what, Tony? You're going to be glad today. But ain't nothing to be glad about. Well, I'm going to be glad anyway. Huh. I'm going to be glad anyway because I recognize who he is. He's my light. He's my salvation. He's my shelter. Do you know what that means? That means I, he said, I will sing. Yeah, I will sing and give praises unto God. Sometimes I, I realize that our government wants you to stop singing because somehow that's going to spread the virus all over America if people even go in their houses and sing. I thought, how ridiculous. But anyway, that's just a personal opinion. You do whatever you want to. But here's what I know. The enemy wants to shut your song down. And if he can shut your song down, he'll shut your praise down and if he shuts your praise down he's going to shut your life flow down and if he shuts your life flow down eventually he's going to shut your faith down because there's something tied to your singing and to your faith Jesus on the cross at Calvary on the cross began to sing he sang Psalms 22 he did it with a song that means when you're dying when you feel like you can't make it when you feel like everything in the world is against you you've got to stand up in the midst of the storm and say I I am going to lift my voice and sing. I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to be glad. And when I do that, then here's what I know. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I'll set my hope on you, God. My expectations are of you. I wish somebody in this building would help me today. I believe it's time for the gate church to sing. I believe it's time for us to lift our voice. It's time for us to rejoice even when we don't feel like rejoicing. I'm going to count to three. I want somebody in this room 